We are back in the book of John, so if you want to open your Bibles to uh, John chapter 12, that would be great. I got good news and bad news. The good news is we are back in the uh, book of John, and this is an awesome passage. The bad news is I printed out my message, and it was a lot more notes than I thought it was, so we could be on a long journey. And I always feel better about that after a week where Paul nearly held us until 2 o'clock in the 1030 service last week. So it feels like I have a little bit of leeway, but I'm going to push. I even wrote things in my notes like move faster in this section. So if I begin to talk like the Micro Machines man, you will please, you know, forgive me. Or even for the reference of the Micro Machines man, forgive me for that as well, because some of you don't even know what that means. So... We're back in the book of John, John chapter 12, and we're going to pick it up in verse um, 37, or actually 36, the end of 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So let's remember where we are in the book of John. And interestingly, I was thinking about how this fits with even the end of our study in Nehemiah over the summer. It's kind of crazy, the section of John that we end up coming back to, because Nehemiah, I don't remember if Paul said this or not, or if you knew this, but Nehemiah, the end of Nehemiah is chronologically basically the end of the Old Testament. It's the end of a cycle that we see in the Old Testament where the people of God, the Israelites, are constantly going through this cycle of obedience to God, rebellion against God, and then God is patient with them. He gives judgment and punishment and corrects them and brings them back into communion with him only to have them rebel again, forget who he is. And this cycle continues in the Old Testament and we even sadly saw that in the end of the book of Nehemiah where at the end of Nehemiah you thought everything was good. They had rebuilt the wall. Everything was going well. And the end of the book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah comes back to the city and he sees that they have left their post. They have stopped doing the things that they swore that they would do for the rest of their lives. And once again, there is failure and Nehemiah is simply saying, God, have mercy on us. And now we jump to the ministry of Jesus. And after Nehemiah, there were 400 years of silence while they waited for a Messiah, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And now he's here. Now he's on the scene. Now Jesus is in his ministry. And we come to this passage, and it is essentially the last public statements that Jesus makes to the people. Chapters 13 through 17 are the longest section that we have of Jesus, but it's to his inner circle. So Christ is making this plea, his last plea, the last part of his ministry, and we see much the same thing that was happening in the Old Testament. Because up until this point in John, Jesus has done miracles. He's shown them who he is. He's answered their questions. When they've come at him, he's had incredibly wise responses to to back up every claim that he has made. And yet, verse 37 says, though he had done not just signs and miracles before them, but so many signs and miracles before them, they still did not believe in him. You know, sometimes when we make mistakes, hopefully we learn from them. Or we learn from our experiences. We learn from things that we do, then we think to ourselves, I don't want to do that again. But yet in this passage, it feels like the Pharisees, the religious leaders, many of the people, they're seeing Jesus, they're challenging Jesus, they're learning that it doesn't work well for them when they do that, 
but they keep in this cycle of unbelief. Their experiences should be leading them to believe in Christ, but it doesn't. We're smarter than that, right? We learn from our mistakes. We learn from our experiences. I have a really, really good friend, probably my best friend, who when she was young, um, she thought that it might be a good idea to stop her tricycle by sticking her thumbs in the spokes of the tricycle. This person's name might rhyme with Benifer, and she might be my wife. <laughs> but I don't think she tried that again. In fact, I know she didn't try that again. She had an experience, didn't go so well. She thought, I'm going to do that differently next time. I have another friend who thought that flying was a really, really awesome thing, and, and she thought, you know, I'm going to try and fly. And her flight apparatus was a garbage bag, and her takeoff point was the roof of her house. It might be the same friend. <laughs> See, I wish I had some of these stories myself, but I'm just not that creative. That was just not, I mean, I have plenty of injuries, but they're just normal ones. And she learned from that experience, she's like, I'm not doing that again. But yet the Pharisees keep persisting in this, like, mistake of unbelief, this, like, sin of unbelief. And it's like, you would think by now you would have learned. But if I were honest, if you were honest, I have to admit there are places in my life where I do go back to things that I've experienced that didn't work out, that were not good, but I still go back to them, even as a Christian. Is there a sin in your life that you confessed a month ago, a week ago, a day ago, an hour ago, but you find yourself still going back to it? Is there a lie that you believe that even though you know it's not true, even though you know that the gospel speaks a better truth than that lie, you still believe the lie, a lie like God could never love you because of X. Or you're not worthy to come back to God after doing X. He doesn't want to hear from you. How is God going to forgive you? Or maybe it's the opposite side of the spectrum. Maybe it's the temptation that comes to you and it says, hey, listen, God's going to forgive you anyway. You've been good and it's been a stressful time in your life. Go ahead and indulge in that thing that you know that you shouldn't. Or maybe it's simple. That guy cuts you off or simply won't let you in the lane that you desire to get in. And so he clearly deserves a long horn and a death stare from you. See, we, we return to things that are not good for us, that we know aren't the thing that we want. And we see that in this passage. These Pharisees, these Jewish leaders, they, they don't see Christ for who he is. And if I have one prayer for us this morning, it would be that we do see him for who he is and we understand the consequences if we don't. Connor was talking to me earlier in the week about worship and putting some stuff together, and I really... I gave him nothing to go on. <laughs> and he's reading the passage, and I cannot think of a better song than what he, we just sang. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you high and lifted up. Let's take a second and pray before we continue into the rest of this passage. God, we want to see you. And God, my prayer is simple, that you would reveal yourself to us. Because, God, we know that you have to. And this passage is going to teach us that it has to be you. It has to be your power because we cannot do it on our own. 
God, people even seeing miracles, even experiencing you walking on this earth, God, they walked away in unbelief. And God, we cannot assume that we would be any better, that we would be any smarter. So God, reveal yourself to us this morning, I pray. I pray it in your name. Amen. It really makes me wonder what this was like for Jesus. So as we carry on in this passage, we're going to see that while it was sad, it was not necessarily something unexpected. So verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Verse 38, so the the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And who or whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and spoke of him. There are undoubtedly difficult passages in the word of God. When you're reading your Bible, there are undoubtedly places that you come to and you think, gosh, I I don't know how much I naturally like this passage. This undoubtedly is one of those passages. So what, what's the issue? What's the issue? Well, it, it seems like if we're, you're reading carefully, verses 37 and verse 40 give different perspectives on why someone does not believe. Like, why does someone not come to know Christ? See, verse 37 says, though he had done so many signs and miracles, like he had given them all these reasons to believe, but they walked away in unbelief, like it's their responsibility. And we know that, right? Like, it's, it's their responsibility. He showed them who he was, and they said, no, we're not interested. Their responsibility. But then in verse 40, it says this, and what does this mean? So that, again, Isaiah said, he blinded their eyes. He hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So what's the deal? Is, is it their responsibility because they turned away? Or is it God's sovereignty and control that is keeping them from being able to do this? If you looked at this, you go, yeah, see, that's, you might be thinking, or, or maybe you have thought in the past, yeah, that's, that's what I thought. God's just looking to smite people. That's not the heart of this passage, but if you ask the question, is it man's responsibility for turning away from Christ, or is it God who is in control of salvation? The answer is simply Yes. Both are true, and they work together in perfect unity. But before we dig into that a little bit, I want to give you just a few principles that when you come to passages like this where you go, okay, I'm not exactly sure. This is a, this is a difficult principle for me to accept. This is a difficult thing for me to kind of work through. I want to give you a few principles when we study the Word of God so that we can work through difficult passages or work through things that are kind of like, ah, I, I don't know what to make of that, right? So let me give you four principles. Four simple principles, okay? One, we need to get the context. We can't just read a passage and assume that like everything that it says is for everyone of all time. We need to know who spoke it. Who was he talking to? Was it to one person? Was it to multiple people? Was it to all of people for all time? We need to get the context. What's going on in this passage and where did it come from? And then secondly, we need to add together or put together all that the Bible has to say about this. Not isolate a passage and take it out and go, we'll see what it says right there in the English language. Because let's remember, it wasn't written in the English language. It's been translated. This whole book, the Bible, is a story, a love story written from God to us. 
We need the whole counsel of God on the things that we are considering. Thirdly, I want us to consider this principle. God is infinite, and we are not. We should expect that if we're going to study who God is and how he works and what he does, that there are going to be things that may be difficult for us to understand. Otherwise, if it was simple for me to understand everything that there was to know about God, that would really make him a lot more like me. I don't know about you, but I would be very uncomfortable if God was like me. The Bible describes him as incomprehensible, that his ways are higher than mine, the size of which I cannot fathom. How can I put that in a box? So there should be a, like an a anticipation that there are going to be things about God that are mysterious, that are, that are difficult, that might be above me. And then lastly, the fourth thing is just simply ask yourself this question. Are you okay with God being God? Even if my study or your study concludes in a way that I would not like, where I say to myself, I would not have done it that way, God. That's not the thing that I would have done. I would have done that a different way. Are we okay with God being God? And to test that principle kind of right away, James Montgomery Boyce has a great quote in one of his commentaries, and he says this when commenting on verse 40. We must say that if God chooses to intervene in a specific way in an individual life, to harden that life, so that the individual cannot believe in Jesus, then God is right in so acting, if this is what he actually does. And notice that I only say if. Then God is just, and no man, least of all ourselves, has the slightest ground for rebuking him. Like, if God is God, if God is in control, I have to step back for a moment and say, I must let God be God. And here's a massively important truth that we're being led back to that I need reminded of a ton because it's not natural for me. And here's the truth. God is not just because he lives up to some standard of justice, and therefore we say he is just. God is just because he is the standard of justice. Therefore, everything he does is just. It's the same with every attribute, with every character trait, with everything that God is. He is not living to a standard that someone else set. He is making the standard. He is the definition of what he is. Every attribute. We do not know love apart from God. We know some version of love. We know some corrupted version of love, but God is the definition of love. He is not loving simply because we declare him so based on our principles and judgments. So there needs to be an assumption, that principle of, okay, I need to recognize, no, God is who he is, and God is God. If I'm misunderstanding this, if this doesn't sit right with me, the issue is not with him, The issue is with me. So with these four principles in tow, let's kind of dig back into this passage. So what is the context? What are we dealing with here? Well, these two verses, verses 38 and verse 40, are actually from the book of Isaiah. 
way back in the Old Testament. And while we do not have time, one of these sections where I have it written right, you have to move fast section. So we don't have time to do like a big deep dive into this, even though I love like Isaiah and I love like all of that kind of history. But here's what you need to understand about the context of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet, which means he spoke for God to the people of God. He was the voice and God would give him things to say to the people of God. And Isaiah ministered at a time about 700 years before this. And to put this in context with what we've been studying too, 700 years before this and about 300 years before the book of Nehemiah. So Isaiah is ministering at a time where the people of God, the Israelites, have set up kings over the tribes of of Israel, right? And even though they're supposed to be united, the Israelites are supposed to be united in representing God to the world around them. They're supposed to be blessed to be a blessing to the world around them. They're supposed to be united in this. Isaiah is ministering at a time where the kingdom has already been divided. They can't even get along. The kingdom has been divided because there's been a war between two kings, and now you don't have the kingdom of Israel. You have a kingdom of Israel, the northern tribes, and you have a kingdom of of Judah, the southern tribes. They're split. It's a mess. Isaiah is watching on the northern side, evil king after evil king after evil king after evil king, and he sees destruction coming to them. And he's ministering and talking to the southern kingdom, which is not far behind the northern kingdom. They're holding out hope. They've got a couple good kings, and you'll see it in in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles where it says this king, you know, uh, was the son of this person, and they reigned for this many years, and they did what was good in the sight of the Lord, or it will say they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Isaiah is ministering during this time where he has seen over and over and over again the pattern of unbelief in the Israelites, rebellion in the Israelites, patience from God, rebuking from God, judgment from God to restore his people. And this pattern continues and continues and continues. And in the midst of that, Isaiah says... In verse 53, or I'm sorry, in verse 38, Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us, and whom has the Lord been revealed? And that's from Isaiah chapter 53. And then in verse 40, which is from Isaiah chapter 6, he says, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. See, he's seen this over and over again. And he's assuredly familiar with another story from a few hundred years earlier than that, another 700 or so years earlier than that, the story of Pharaoh, when Pharaoh leads, Pharaoh is enslaved the people of Israel in Egypt. And this is from the book of Exodus. And we won't turn there, but in Exodus chapters 7 through 12, about 7 through 12, there is this interchange between Moses, who is the the mouthpiece for God essentially, speaking to Pharaoh, saying, let the people of God go, and Pharaoh will not do it. And this term, hardening of hearts, God hardening someone's heart, is used in the story of Pharaoh. But what's really interesting is throughout chapter 7 through 12, we see multiple times where, where it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And then a, few, a chapter later, you'll see God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And then you'll see Pharaoh hardened his heart against God. And then it says, God hardened his heart. Sometimes verses apart, where Pharaoh hardens his heart against God, will not listen to him, will not do what God is telling him to, won't won't do it, and then God says he hardened his heart. And again, you start to ask the question, well, who's 
doing the hardening? What's, what's going on here? Well, in the midst of this kind of season or this pattern that Isaiah is seeing, God gives him a message for the people of Israel. And in that message, in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, which is where we find the equivalent verse, which is kind of verse 40 here is a paraphrase of 6.10, but right before it is verse 9. And Isaiah 6.9 says this, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. And then he goes on to say, Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. You see what 6 9 is saying? It's saying, listen, we've seen you in this pattern for some time. You've been hardening your hearts, and hardening your hearts, and hardening your hearts, and now God gives you over to that hardening. Now God is the one hardening your hearts. And see, in verse 6, 9, keep on hearing and do not understand, keep on seeing, but do not perceive Herein lies the real issue. And here's that second principle. What does the Bible say about us? Holistically, when it comes to unbelief, when it comes to not being able to like, respond to God, what does the Bible say? Does the Bible teach that men and women are able to choose God, but God hardens or closes their mind and therefore they are damned to hell? Or does the Bible teach that we begin by being incapable of choosing God and he must graciously intervene that we might see the truth and embrace it and be saved? Paul sent me an uh, email a couple weeks ago and the subject line simply said, quote for your sermon. So when I saw that, I thought it wasn't like, hey, this is a good idea. And I thought, oh, this looks like an instruction. I guess I have to put this in. It says, this is a quote for your sermon. So, here it is. It actually is a very, very, it's, ex, it's excellent. It was from James Montgomery Boyce as well. But here's what he says in relation to this question. Are we capable of choosing God? Or are we incapable of choosing God? In terms of salvation, it is hardly necessary for God to blind anyone. For men begin blind. They come to Christ only when God intervenes and gives sight to them. See, this is what the Bible tells us. This is, this is kind of the hard truth to accept about ourselves that helps us understand the hard truth that we see in our passage this morning. See, the hard truth about ourselves is this. Romans 3 tells us that nobody seeks after God, that no one does good naturally. Romans chapter 5 tells us how we inherited sin and how all of us are born in our sin because of the fall of man that happened so long ago that all of us naturally seek after ourselves. And if we think about it in the experience that we've lived, in the experience of our world, we see that. I always say it this way, and, and you know, this is the, the funny, cute you know, part of, to say this is like, did any of you who have kids, did any of you have to teach them how to say no? I was like the first word that they learned. It was like they learned how to demonstrate their will and they learned how to rebel. And I don't think it was learned because it came so naturally. It's like, go do this. No. Come. No. Eat these green beans. No. Well, I understand. I hate green beans too. We are born with this rebellious nature against God. Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we were chosen by God before the foundations of the world, 
that we were predestined by him in love to be a part of his family. And man, is that a good thing because Ephesians chapter two tells us that we are dead in our sin. That we have no ability to reach out to God. We have no ability in our own, in our nature to reach out and make that choice of choosing God. How would we be able to do that? How would we be able to do that when we are born blind and unable to see him for who he is? How would he be attractive to us? How would we see his beauty lest he were to uncover and unblind our eyes? John 6, earlier in this very book said, no one comes to the Father except Jesus draw him. No one comes to God unless they're drawn by him to him. See, the, the mistake I think that we make when we see this passage, and even, I'm telling you, I've been a Christian a long time. I've known this passage a long time. I've, I've believed it for a long time, but I read it and I go, oh, why? Because of those, a part of me that always wants to go back to thinking that we're born neutral. That, that we're born neutral with the, the full ability to freely choose whatever I want to choose. The reality is that's not me, that's not you, that's not our nature. We were not born in neutral, and God is simply pushing people one way or the other. That's not what's going on. We were born blind and dead in our sin, destined for a place of judgment called hell. And our only hope, our only hope is that God would shed light on our eyes. See, I think about the illustration like this, and I think, like, if I was blind, I say I couldn't see, I was blind, and someone came and put a blindfold on me, would I say to that person, hey, stop that, you've blinded me. You've made me blind. Now, it might be accurate because the blindfold is absolutely covering my eyes, but it's not an accurate depiction of the situation because I was already blind. So I don't know exactly, I can't tell you the thoughts and the minds of God every moment where he chose to use language like he blinded their minds and hardened their hearts, but I do know this, he didn't need to do it for me to be lost and desperately without hope without him. I know this, that when he does it, it seems to be some sort of like particular time and moment for his purpose that he's saying, fine, I'm giving you over to the blindness that you've been desiring. Think about this passage. Think about the miracles that they've seen. Think about the introduction to Jesus that they've had. Think about the messages that they've heard. Think about, think about the level of hardness of heart they have already demonstrated in saying, no, I don't want you, Jesus. And in this moment, he's saying, fine. I almost thought of the illustration like this. We think of it sometimes like, what is God doing here? He's like digging a hole for these guys and throwing them down in a pit and shutting the hole and blinding them. That's not the depiction of Jesus. That's not the depiction of who he is anywhere in Scripture. The depiction is that the Pharisees, the Israelites, the leaders who don't want to believe in Jesus have dug their own hole. They've dug their own hole and they've crawled down in there and they've got a cover and they're pulling the cover over the hole and they're sneering up at Jesus. We don't believe in you. We don't want you. You aren't who you say you are. And Jesus is pulling the cover back saying, look at me. Listen to me. 
And finally, Jesus says, fine. Pull that cover over. And now, now, you may not get the chance again to see me for who I am. It's simply a more extreme or decided version of our natural state without Jesus. So when we come to this passage and we see what what God is doing, and we're going to see in the, the finish of this passage what God really desires, what Jesus really wants. I just have this warning. I want you to look back at verse 35. There's this illustration of light that goes all throughout the book of John, but Jesus says in verse 35, he said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. He's talking about himself. Like, walk with me. Be with me. Believe in me while you have it, lest the darkness overtake you. What does that mean? What does that mean? He's calling out to them, walk with me. Believe in me, lest the darkness overtake you. Don't keep pushing back. Don't keep rebelling. Don't keep being stiff-necked and stubborn in your unbelief. Believe, lest the darkness overtake you. Here's what I know. I know that that God is desirous of people to come to know him to be saved. And I know that he has to do the work of opening your heart in order for you to see. And I also know that there are finite opportunities for you to do that. If you sit in this room and you don't know Jesus, I want you to know. I have no way of knowing. We, no one, has any way of knowing when that final moment will be that God offers to turn the lights on. But every person who dies in unbelief, every person who dies and does not believe on the name of Jesus has that moment where it was the last moment that God was offering, I want you to see the light. I want you to see me. It's not wise for us to keep pushing back against those things because the Bible here and in other places shows us that the pattern of people who keep pushing and keep pushing and keep rebelling and keep not wanting Jesus, he says, okay, fine. You'll have it your way. C.S. Lewis has this great quote, and I didn't write it down, so I'm probably going to screw it up. He says, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those that at the end of their life will say to God, thy will be done. You're my savior. I see it your way. And those to whom God says, thy will be done. You have it your way. I didn't screw it up. It's pretty good. (laughs) So as we read this, what is the response of the people or what else is there? Let's continue in verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. This is crazy. So even though so many didn't believe, and there were hard hearts, there were people who did believe in who Jesus said he was. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Listen to this verse. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. When I read that the first time, I was convicted. This is not just a verse for people who die in unbelief 
This is a verse for you and for me. You call yourself a Christian? Where are the places in your life where you show that you love the glory of man, the praise of man, more than you love the glory of God, the praise of God? How important are those Instagram likes? How important is that job promotion, that 401k, that savings account, that second house that you're working towards? How important are those things to us? Good old-fashioned peer pressure. I want to be in the group that believes what the majority believes. What this tells me is that they didn't truly see Jesus for who he really was. So they didn't truly believe because they wouldn't commit, they wouldn't stand up. This, this passage in verse 43 could be a message in and of itself, and we obviously don't have time for that, but look at verse 41. I just want you to notice this. Isaiah said these things because he saw the glory and he spoke of him. He's talking about Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah has this encounter with God where he says he saw the Lord. And from this passage, we presume that he saw Jesus the Messiah as God in heaven before he came to the earth. And it says that Isaiah, understandably so, came unglued. Like, I cannot be in your presence. And the words that came out were holy, 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 perfect, set apart, otherly. You are holy, intrinsically, divinely sacred. And though we know that Isaiah was not a particularly sinful man, we don't know that Isaiah was a particularly sinful man, what was highlighted by God's presence was, I am nothing like him, woe to me, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He saw that glory, and here's the deal with it. Like, it wasn't just that it revealed to him who he was, but it was the most beautiful thing the most perfect thing, the most holy thing that he had ever seen. And then you read this verse where people and us, let's not kid ourselves, we trade that for the glory and the praise of mankind. So I just ask you, where are the places that you might be doing that? And see, and, and this God, this presence, this power, this holiness, he desires that we draw near to him because listen to what he says in verses 44 through 50. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me, not in me, but in him who sent me, or I'm sorry, whoever believes in me, sorry, I'm going to start again. And Jesus cried out, which by the way, that's only used of Jesus like three or four times in the entire New Testament, and it always means like literally cried out, like calling attention to himself. Think about this, the last statement like that Christ makes to the public, to the people, he cries out, I want attention. Whoever believes in me, believe not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge them for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority but the father who sent me himself has given me a commandment what to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. And what I see in this passage is Jesus is posing two questions. He's calling people and posing these two questions. He's saying, do you see me? Do you see me for who I am? And do you understand what it means if you do not see me? Do you see me? 
And do you understand what it means if you do not see me? There's a recurring theme. We talked about it of light in John. It comes back over and over and over again. I preached some four or five months ago, and the passage was, I am the light of the world from John chapter 8. Jesus is saying, has the light exposed your eyes? I'm coming to give light to your blindness. I'm coming to help you see who I am, that you would see who you are and see your need for a Savior. I'm coming that you might see God, the divine one in me. John 10, 30, he says, I and the Father are one. This passage is, if you see me, you see God. He is saying, I am God, and I'm here to be judged for you. See, I'm not trying to get you to see some parlor tricks or hear some wise words or some good moral teaching. I came that you would see God incarnate come on a rescue mission for you. Do you see me? And do you understand what it means if you don't see me? See, Jesus says he didn't come to judge, but he came to save. But he says there is a judgment coming. You go, what? how does that work? I mean, I thought, okay, 2,000 years ago when Jesus came to this earth, he came on a mission, and his mission in that moment was not judgment. His mission was salvation, to give healing to people who were hurting and broken. He says, listen, I am here right now not to judge, but to save. I'm here to give you an opportunity to see who I am, but there is coming a second coming of Christ, and when he comes, Though the first time he came, he set up a throne of grace to draw us in. The second time he comes will be a throne of judgment for those who do not believe in him. That is a terrible place to be. Judgment is not an easy concept for us to understand. We, we feel like sometimes, at least I think if we would admit it, why couldn't God just not judge? A Croatian philosopher and theologian who grew up in the Balkans during times of great bloodshed made this observation about people's inability to understand the need for judgment, and maybe particularly us in maybe the environments that we've grown up in. And he said this about his experience. If you had your daughters raped, your sons beheaded, and your houses burned to the ground and are still alive, and are told there is no God or that there is only a God of love and grace, no judgment day. You need to put down your weapons and try to get along. They will most certainly push you aside, pick up whatever weapon is available, and go out and seek their own judgment day. Anyone who has been wronged this, this, this way will know this. However, if you believe that there is a judgment day coming, that one day God will stand on the earth and wrongs will be righted and every evil redressed and every sin will be paid for and he will do it perfectly, he will set everything right, this could be powerful enough to get you to set down your weapons and live at peace. So if you're someone who cares about justice at all, we need a judgment day. Though that may not be your experience of war, I know there are people in this room who have suffered severe injustices. Severe crimes against themselves or their families. What hope is there if that will never be set right? Our world has no hope if there is no judgment day. But here's my question. If there is a judgment day, what hope is there for you and for me? Because I'm not perfect. Last week in worship, we were singing a song that um, Connor wrote. 
called Let Justice Roll, and I was singing these words. I'm just going to pair or talk through some of these lyrics. Greater than Pharaoh, breaker of shackles, he is the Lord. Almighty God, deliverer, when will this suffering end? Part the sky, descend, return, send that righteous man, Jesus, saying, we want you, Jesus. We want you to come. We want you to fix things. And then the chorus says this, let justice roll. Let mercy flow down from Zion like a river. Let the world behold wonders foretold. Bring an end to this injustice, Lord. And I'm singing these words and I'm thinking about all of these things that are going on in the world and our hope, our only hope for the fix of this injustice. Our only hope for justice is God. And it says this, let the orphans meet their father. Let the widows find their comfort. Let the days of war be over. Bring an end to this injustice, Lord. And I was struck in that moment. I'm singing out, bring an end to this injustice, Lord. And I'm thinking about these things that are outside of me, these things that I haven't taken part in, and, and it, then it cuts quick to my heart. What am I really singing for? Bring an end to this injustice, Lord. And all of a sudden, every injustice in my own heart was brought to me. And I realized I'm not singing about injustices that are outside of me. I'm not singing about things that need to be judged outside of me. I'm, think, I'm singing about things that are inside me. No, I may not be some sort of warmonger. I may not have done the atrocities that I could accuse other people of. But I know this. There are injustices in my own heart. And if it was left up to me, if I was the king of the universe and left to dispense justice, it would be so far from perfect. Our world would be just as screwed up and just as messed up. And in that moment, feeling the weight of the injustices in me when I thought that I was singing about things outside of me, Jesus came to me. It wasn't a vision. It wasn't an audible voice. It was that moment where he connects to your heart and he reminds you of truth and he says to me, see me. I'll fix your injustice. I'll go to war against those things. I'll judge the things that need judged. Not just out there in the world, not just the rapists and the murderers and the people at war, the terrorists. I'll take care of them and you too. I'll make it right. And that's what he's saying to us this morning. He's saying, see me. See me and be saved. See me, the one person who had the right to judge you, but yet I'm judged in your place. The one person, see me, Jesus, who had the right to condemn you, but was condemned for you in your place on the cross. See me. The light of the world plunged into darkness that we may be saved. He's standing in our place. And if we believe in Jesus, if we see him for who he is, it means that our judgment is already paid. It means the judgment day for us is over as soon as we come to Christ and we confess to him, I see you and I can't do this. I cannot save myself. I cannot unblind my eyes. I need you, Christ. As soon as we come to him, the judgment day for us is in the past. Amen? And to those who may be sitting in this room and maybe you're newer to the church experience or you're, you would say by your own admission, maybe you don't know Jesus. Jesus is saying to you the same thing. Leave the darkness behind. 
Come to me. See me for who I am. I will fix every injustice. I will forgive every sin. He is crying out to us. See me. Father, I pray that this morning, God, that we would, God, whether we have known you for a long time, God, whether we just met you and and just became a Christian, whether we are not, God, my prayer is the same, God, that we would see you and that we would respond to you. God, open the eyes of our heart that we would see you and cry out, holy, holy, holy. God, we pray this in your name, amen.